Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Dr. Michael Benson, Eastern Kentucky University president since 2013, has reached a momentous turning point in his life and has left his position as president at Eastern. Dr. Benson will remain as an advisor to the Board of Trustees through a transition period. We'll find out what's next for Dr. Benson, and if you don't already know, it may surprise you. But first, let's welcome Michael Benson to our Think Humanities podcast and talk with him about what led him to EKU in the first place. You already had quite a career in higher education before you came to uh, Eastern, uh, Michael, and uh, First of all, welcome. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for having me, and uh, kudos to you and your colleagues for the superb work you do at the the Humanities, and I'm a big fan of yours, as you know. (laughs) Thank you, sir, very much. You um, ended up in Kentucky um, how, after your career in higher education? Tell me about your, your, uh, if you will, your your training to to come to Kentucky as president. Well, I think you probably have to go back to how I got my start in higher education, which uh, came kind of serendipitously. Um, I had finished my doctorate at Oxford. I thought the world was kind of at my feet, uh, and I had a really difficult time finding teaching positions. Uh, And so I thought, well, you know, my my parents inculcated into all six kids that all labor was worthy, and I did a lot of manual labor as a kid, as a in construction and and lawn care and that sort of thing. So I went to work with my cousin who uh, was buying houses and renovating them. And so I'm up on the roof one day. We're roofing. We would get started early in 5 o'clock to get off by 5 a.m. to get off by 1 because it Mm -hmm. got so hot. And one of my coworkers, I I just started talking to him. Um, His name was Mike Warner. I said, what does your parents do? What does your dad do? And he worked in fundraising at the University of Utah. And it turns out that his boss was my Cub Scout leader when I was 11 years old, Mike Matson. And so I was interested, and I said, look, I'm willing to try anything. <laughs> and long story short, I got a job in the fundraising uh, development office at the University of Utah. They were launching the biggest campaign in their history at the time. This is 1994, uh, half a billion dollars. <laughs> and it was to tie into their... Sesquicentennial, their 150th anniversary. So we had quite a bit of success. I really found I loved fundraising because it's no more than sales. And if you believe in the product, which in this case is education, which to me is the most important thing next to my family and my life and my faith, and it's changed my life. And um, so we had some successes. It got the attention of the president at the University of Utah. And he asked me one day to be his uh, special assistant. And I didn't know quite what that meant. Uh, I'd also given him a copy of my book, by the way, on Harry Truman, and he was a, kind of a, um, a historian. When did you write that, uh, Dr. That was Benson? my dissertation that I, oh. I, after I finished it, I put it down. I thought, boy, I've got to get some mileage out of this thing. I've put so much sweat equity into it. So I didn't know anything about publishing at the time, so I took a few chapters and sent it to presses at Harvard, Yale, Chicago, UCLA, Berkeley, just very naively, <laughs> and the response to a press was the same. We do not publish dissertations. Now, I sent it to two that I thought there might have uh, some luck with. The University of Missouri, because it was about Harry Truman, his home state, 
and Prager, which is an international relations press out of Connecticut. And Prager said, we'll take it as it is. And here's your editor. She lives in Maine. This is long before kind of zip files or Dropbox. So I would finish a chapter, uh, and they wanted to to really make it galley ready. I mean, they wanted to make it camera ready for proofs. And so I'd send her a chapter. She'd Mm. FedEx it back to me. And this is 19, uh, what, 1994-95. And it came out in time for the 50th anniversary of the State of Israel. Hmm. So that was 1998. So it led to all sorts of opportunities for me. <clears throat> Excuse me, with um, the Truman Library, uh, with the Skirball Cultural Center. I was an academic advisor and historian for them uh, in Los Angeles, and it kind of opened the the world of academic publishing to me, which I was very unfamiliar with at the time. And I thought, you know, I can write a book. Maybe I'll do another one later. Now, fast forward 20 years, it took me literally two decades to Mm -hmm. (laughs) crank out the most recent one, and I'm in the midst of doing one now. But all that to say, Bill, that one thing led to another, and I became uh, president at age 36 of a two-year school in central Utah. That led to southern Utah, where I was almost there for uh, for seven years, and then we got recruited to come out here to Kentucky. So your... Your life uh, and your your growing up and what your parents instilled in you you you've always it's kind of a, tried to say a lifelong learner but you were you were challenged but enjoyed the challenge of of research and education and 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 learning as much as you possibly could about everything. Yeah, my mom was a uh, she came from a very humble background, uh, very kind of poor um, upbringing in in southwestern Alberta little town called Raymond and she never graduated from college she met my dad when they were both students but they got married and, and she never finished but she was a lifelong learner she was an amazing musician a very good pianist and we all were required to take piano lessons but I think from her my dad went to Stanford got a master's degree in education and he wanted to be a high school principal but he found his calling in life in selling cookware door-to-door when he was in graduate school and that led to management opportunities. And my parents didn't have a lot. We didn't have a lot going up. But any extra money we put into music lessons, you know, sent my brother to Philmont. He was a Boy Scout. Um, but it was always kind of around activities that led to our growth, either intellectually, musically, um, you know, spiritually. They were a very kind of faith-based family. But there were not a lot of uh, kind of accoutrements uh, that we had at our house other than a lot of books and a lot of music. And I really attribute to my parents, I thank them for, for instilling in us uh, a love of, of learning and uh, of knowledge. I have a brother who's a Pulitzer Prize winning cartoonist who's the, obviously the smartest of the family. He's, Is he still at the uh, Arizona Republic? No, they unfortunately, like a lot of things, oh, uh, you know, they mm-hmm. got bought by Gannett and, and mm-hmm. laid off an, an entire newsroom, including Steve who'd been there for three decades. Mm. And, and a Pulitzer Prize finalist several mm-hmm. times and won it. Um, but still in all, yeah. we, uh, we have always had a family uh, committed to the, the acquisition of, of as much knowledge as possible and, and remaining curious. I would really appreciate that. Did you read everything as a, as a kid, as a child? I wish I could say I did, Bill. I mean, I, I had favorites. Uh, I, you really used to love reading Sports Illustrated. You know, mm-hmm. David McCullough was a Sports Illustrated yeah. writer out of Yale, and and um, uh, I read a lot of kind of Western 
thrill books as a kid. Um, I didn't really get into history, I would say, until I was a, an undergraduate, and that was my minor. But it wasn't until I got to Israel, I went to Israel and studied abroad, that I really fell in love with the Middle East, and that was kind of led me down that path of Middle Eastern history. Tell me about your Mormon faith and uh, how that is so important to to all devout Mormons and uh, your your mission trips and uh, the, the service that you provide, just for sort of a, a Mormon primer, if you will, for those <laughs> of us who, who don't know the faith that well. Yeah, uh, my grandfather was uh, at one point the president of the Mormon Church, so he was... Uh, he was the Secretary of Agriculture for uh, President Eisenhower for eight years. And I mention that because his ancestors, three grandfathers back, was one of the original kind of uh, 12 apostles that came west with Brigham Young. So our faith, our, our heritage really goes back a long way. So he was with Brigham Young when they settled the Salt Lake Valley in 1847. So uh, I'm as much a spiritual Mormon, I would argue, as I am a cultural Mormon because it really goes back into our DNA a long way. So I was raised in a very uh, kind of Mormon-based household. It was expected that I would go on a mission. The males are uh, expected for females, not so much. So I have four sisters. Two went, two didn't. My brother went to Japan. I went to Italy. And you don't have any say as to where you go. Uh, they send you a letter saying you're hereby called to such and such. And I got a really good draw to go to Rome, Italy. And when I went to a place to try and learn Italian, I had a friend named James Delamar who was getting sent to Hong Kong. And so if I ever thought that Italian was hard, I'd go over and hear him try and speak Cantonese. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't so bad. So, you know, I have five children. My two oldest have been on missions, and they're 18 months in duration for females and two years for males. Uh, Emma, my daughter, went to Cambodia, and mm -hmm. she speaks Khmer. Sam went to Spanish-speaking Boston, and he's fluent in Spanish. Mm -hmm. So in addition to uh, the, the unbelievably uh, fulfilling experience that a mission is um, in opening one's perspective to different cultures and peoples and languages, you really grow up. I mean, I was 19 years old. It was the first time I lived uh, away from home in a foreign country. And when I came back from my mission, I'll end on this, I made a list of five cities where I wanted to live, and I had no idea how I was going to do it by the age of 30. And the five cities were Rome, London, Jerusalem, New York, and Washington, D.C. And I'm happy to say I've lived in each of those cities for at least a year, except New York. So at some point in my life, maybe Debbie, my wife, and I, when we're retired, I'd love to go live in New York for a year, not have a car, just live in an mm -hmm. apartment somewhere. And enjoy the parks and the libraries and all, all that the city has to offer. For a 19-year-old uh, in, in Rome, Italy, I, I just can uh, imagine how uh, life-changing that could have been, not, not from a faith standpoint, but I, I would think just from a historical, as you said, you were just starting to learn. Uh, uh, maybe uh, had you ever been exposed that much to Catholicism and, and the the seat of, uh, uh, of their world, uh, it must have been, uh, as I said, life-changing for you as a, as a young guy. It was, and I hate to admit it, but I was not that well-versed in other world religions as a teenager. I don't think too many teenagers no. are. Right. So I didn't know much about Catholicism, of course, living in Jerusalem like I did for almost a year and a half. 
I know quite a bit about Judaism and Islam. Uh, excuse me, not a, I, we all know a, a little, but I know more. When did that uh, in, in your in your life? When, when were you in Israel? So when I came, when I was a junior at Brigham Young. Oh. I was 20, what, 23, 24. I'd been back from my mission for a, a year or so. I decided to sell my car and go to Jerusalem for six months. And Brigham Young University has an unbelievable center right in between Mount Scopus and the Mount of Olives. And it looks toward the old city. It's, it's an unbelievable facility. And about 150 students can go uh, for a spring or a fall semester and then a summer term. And I, I did a six-month program. This is not required. This is no. something that uh, that you wanted to do. That that Brigham Young gives you the the ability to do. BYU, uh, if you think about it, think of all the, the missionaries that return back, and how many have proficiency in a second language. So they've had study abroad centers established in Spain, throughout Europe, London, of course, uh, in the Middle East for years and years. But the Jerusalem Center, to my, I mean, has been there since they've had a presence there since the 1970s. Mm after the Yom Kippur War of 1973. And so it, they know the Middle East pretty well, and they've uh, tried to provide an opportunity for as many students as possible to go over there. I mean, imagine studying the Old Testament. We'd say about, you know, this is where Moses was in Jordan, looking into the, the Promised Land, and then the next day you'd get in a bus and you'd cross the Alamy Bridge and you'd go see it. And that was the kind of experience it was. I mean, you'd talk about the amount of, uh, there's somewhere on the mount, and then we'd go up to the Sea of Galilee and go see it. And we worked on a kibbutz. We did everything. We went to Egypt and uh, talk about a transformative experience too. And it was then that I, I fell in love with the Middle East. It was not dissimilar to Thomas Friedman when he and I, I got to know him when I was in Washington D.C. And he talked about the first time going through Damascus Gate and hearing the the, the sounds and the smells and the sights, and he knew this was it. And so I, I called my parents and I said, I don't, I know I talked about going to law school, but I think I want to do Middle Eastern history. And my dad, I remember his response. He said, Michael, we'll support you in whatever you want to do, but hmm. what on earth are you going to do with that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I said, I don't know, Dad, but that's what I'm passionate about now. Mm-hmm. And I, I credit my parents for supporting me in, throughout all of this. Did, um, uh, this was, I guess, several years later, your, your first book, your dissertation, mm-hmm. uh, then uh, certainly, you were rooted in in writing about Truman and Israel, mm-hmm. and that gave you uh, sort of you didn't know it at the time, but that sort of grounded you in 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 wanting to explore that area. Yeah, when I was over there, I realized that America had um, involvement in that part of the world. Uh, certainly, from the Balfour Declaration, without getting into too much detail, the Balfour Declaration happened in what 1917. 1918, uh, right in the midst of World War I. And tell us what that is. So it was a letter from a, a private citizen um, to Lord Balfour that said, uh, excuse me, from Lord Balfour to a private citizen saying, in effect, that his British, His Majesty's government looks with favor, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine. So that became de facto government policy for, uh, for England. And Winston Churchill said in his lifetime, if a Jewish state was established on the banks of the Jordan River, it would be beneficial to the British Empire and to the world. And the reason that's important is every president from Woodrow Wilson through Ronald Reagan stated, in effect, support for the Balfour Declaration and the, uh, a, a Jewish state. Now, 
Harry Truman, interestingly enough, the president that recognized the state of Israel in May of 1948, supported a two-state solution. Mm-hmm. And I do too, mm-hmm. because the only way, I think, the only path to peace which they have found ever elusive in that part of the world is to have a place for both. Now, I'm supportive of, of Israel's right to existence. They deserve to be recognized like they were by the United States and subsequently the Soviet Union. Now, one reason Truman did it in '48 is he wanted to beat the Soviet Union to the punch. And he did. He, he issued recognition 11 minutes after David Ben-Gurion said, we are hereby a free and independent state after the British had left. So the idea that the Palestinians don't deserve a state to me is anathema to Harry Truman's perspective. Now, this is a very complex issue. We don't have time to get into it. But having lived there and having friends on both sides, when I say both sides, you know, it tears your heart out to see what's happened. And there has to be, um, at some point, uh, give and take on both sides and say, look, the Palestinians deserve a right to, to have their state and to respect the state of Israel as well. Well, you say we don't have time to go into it, but I think it's, uh, it's probably one of the most uh, paramount, uh, important uh, conflicts that uh, have occurred in, in any of our lifetimes and, and going back even uh, to the time that our parents were, were actively uh, looking at uh, world affairs. It seems like to me that in order to understand it, uh, you can do so much through uh, research and, and scholarship, but, but living it, I would imagine, and knowing the geography of and how small an area we're talking about and, and where the Palestinians were and, and would be uh, has to lend to an understanding of, of the difficulty that, that still is with us today. You're exactly right, Bill. And if you, and if you look at the original partition plan as was passed by this fledgling organization called the United Nations in 1947, which had only been in existence literally for a few years, um, it's, it won't work. I mean, it had sections of a Palestinian state that were literally sandwiched in between uh, a Jewish state. But still in all, it passed 33 to 13, I think was the vote. Um, and immediately upon its, uh, its passage, uh, uh, the war broke out. The War of Independence is what the Israelis call it, War of 1948. And the British announced that they were going to leave, uh, which they did on May the 12th of 1948. And a couple of days later, the Israelis said, we're here to stay. Hmm. Now, the issue for the United States was we did not want to be drawn into another, what people were prognosticating would be World War III. I mean, here we are, literally a few years removed from... Uh, the Great War. I mean, they refer to World mm-hmm. War One, but World War Two, uh, and the atomic bomb, and America running on an oil machine to to keep its military mm-hmm. going. And if the Soviet Union, the Arabs side with the Soviet Union, thereby America loses access to warm water ports. So what are we going to do? And so there are all these kind of. And I'm talking. I know mm-hmm. a lot of different directions here, but Truman was surrounded by people who were advising him. We can't do this. From George Marshall to Dean Acheson to Robert Lovett, uh, you name it, he, he was told this is going to be a conflict we cannot be drawn into. Um, there was a famous uh, secretary of the Navy, J- James Forrestal, who used to say the 40 million Arabs are going to throw the 
they're going to toss the 400,000 Jews in the mm. Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. That's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And Truman felt like, on the pers- from his perspective, we owed it to the Jewish people to support their right to live because a third of them had been wiped out in the space of, what, six, seven years during mm-hmm. the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. So it's, to your point, it's difficult for us to project ourselves back unless you understand the historical t- context and the pressure that the president was getting from the Jewish lobby and mm-hmm. from all sorts of directions. But, you know, at the end of the day, he th- Truman did what he thought was right. And that was issue immediate recognition of the state of Israel. Now, it's created all sorts of challenges for us, but still in all, we've never had a better ally in that part of the world mm-hmm. than the state of Israel. So as a young man, you had um, been to, uh, spent time in uh, two years in Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had this experience uh, in in Israel, uh, knowing uh, both nations uh, there. Um, pick up the story and and lead us up to what uh, what led you to to Oxford. So when I was in England, I thought, uh, what's the one country that's been over here longer than the United States? Well, it's pretty clear it was the British. Um, the the fact that I wanted to study overseas was uh, kind of uh, burned into me. Uh, I just had such a wonderful experience doing study abroad. So I looked at programs. I applied for a Marshall Scholarship. I was too old for a Rhodes and not smart enough for a Rhodes. Um, I got to a, the interview round for the Marshall, didn't get it. So I just decided to make my own application and, and applied at a place called St. Anthony's College which is an all-graduate college. Oxford is developed or divided into 36 different colleges. Is so, that correct? Now, I, I want you to explain that to, to us, if you will. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it's not state-run. It's all, it, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a public university. Uh, it receives some state funding, but they're just getting now into fundraising uh, like we have done for years and years. And so... They've, they've been really uh, dependent on the, on the British government to support both Cambridge and Oxford. Now, Cambridge was founded by people that were dissidents that, that, that left Oxford. Uh, but Oxford traces its roots back. It's the oldest English-speaking university in the world. Huh. And Balliol College, I want to say, was either 1099 or the lo- early part of the, oh, wow. the 12th century. So, uh, ironically, the college that was founded after Balliol was a new college. <laughs> and New College was founded in the mid, mid part uh-huh. of the of the uh, what 13th century. So, did you have your? Uh, are they in particular um, areas of uh, of discipline, or uh, when you apply? I mean, the 36. You have a choice. Do you have a choice of one of the 36? Yeah, you put in, kind of in rank order what your your preferences would be. Now, for an undergrad, if I'm a British student and I've done my A levels, the exams, uh, and I've gone to a, a school and I want to go to Oxford, they all want to go to you know. Christchurch or Balliol or New or Oriel, mm-hmm. Jesus College, some of the really old ones. Hmm. For graduate students, it's not nearly as important because you want to go to a college that has a specific emphasis on your area. St. Anthony's had a Middle East center. They have a, the Nissan Center for Asian Studies. They mm-hmm. have a Russian center. Uh, Nuffield College, for example, that's where if you want to do economics, that's where you go to, to read hmm. economics. And so I knew that St. Anthony's was the place for me. Uh, the professor I wanted to study with was there. Um, uh, Yarnton Manor, which was the Center for Jewish Studies. Uh, his mm. name was Noah Lucas, a mm-hmm. Scottish fellow, <laughs> became a very good friend. <laughs> and, um, you know, the British system is such that you don't do nearly the coursework that is required of a PhD program in America, but they gear it toward your producing 
a publishable uh, thesis or dissertation. So there's tremendous emphasis on writing in the tutorial. I would have to be, uh, I would have to do a paper a week, and then I'd have to come and present it to my my professor. And right there, he would just critique mm -hmm. it and yeah. say, "You left off this. You need to do that." And this process of fine tuning, mm -hmm. I really believe, uh, was incredibly beneficial to me because by by uh, degrees in, I had a dissertation that was ready to get published. Now. The experience I related earlier, uh, I was naive as to how that happens in America, mm -hmm. but it was it was published, and uh, I thank the British system for helping me do that. Tell me about your class, and I'm not just talking about uh, the 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 more um, well known members of your uh, Oxford class, uh, and you'll get to that I know. But uh, the the had you been around those types of students, and, uh, and they weren't all American, were they? No, uh, my college, uh, St. Anthony's, was really unique because there were 230 uh, rough, roughly students from probably 25 to 30 different countries. Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, the, my first year I lived in a home. It was two houses combined, 18 or 19 of us from 10 different countries. <laughs> so there was a communal kitchen in the basement. You go down there and you would hear, you know, you'd smell curry one night or you'd smell schnitzel the other night or yeah. i mean it, it was an amazing one of my best friends was Susie assad and Susie lived next door um she was a coptic christian originally from cairo her family moved to virginia fluent in arabic english and french and it did it, it opened this world to me up, up up to me that i you know i was fairly cosmopolitan i thought i lived overseas but nothing like some of my classmates you know, these were Rhodes Scholars from Yale and Princeton and Harvard. Cory Booker was a classmate. Um, Noah Feldman, Harvard Law Professor. Uh, Marion Wright Edelman's son, uh, Noah uh, uh, Judah. Mm -hmm. he, uh, he was uh, a classmate of mine. Um, it was my first night there, Bill, and I'm, I'm, I'm not making this up, my first week. You go into the Porter's Lodge, and each college has this little kind of ante room before you go into the main kind of cloister. And they have a board up of all the lectures of people who are coming to speak that term or that week. And I, one jumped at me and it said, uh, speaking um, tonight, uh, Sir Edmund Hillary. I thought, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. So my friend, um, Eric Goldstein, who is now the CFO of the New York public school system, a uh, budget of over a billion dollars in all those schools. He lived down the hall from me. I said, Eric, let's go hear uh, Sir Edmund Hillary. And we thought for sure he was going to talk about what it was like to summon Everest and to do it right before the Queen's coronation, maybe it was right after. And he walks in and the, the, the very Oxford sort of environment and the, the vice rector hits this huge mace on the ground and everybody stands up. And here comes Sir Edmund Hillary. You know, he's a tall man, 6'4", mm 6'5", -hmm. kind of gangly, a beekeeper mm -hmm. from New Zealand. And he got up there and he said, you know, you all probably thought I was going to come and talk about what it was like to summit with my Sherpa friend, Tanzig Norgay, uh, Mount Everest. I'm not going to do that tonight. I brought some slides. And then he proceeded to talk about his life's work after that. How, And this wasn't in any way sort of self-aggrandizing. This was, I could have done this. I could have been the sponsor of that. But I chose to raise money for the people of Nepal. Mm. To help them build roads and bridges and schools and hospitals, he helped rebuild a temple that burned down. Uh, and I, I left that thinking that was unbelievable. 
here's a man at the apex of his popularity mm-hmm. who could have done everything, you know, a life of leisure and given lectures, but he chose to use that to benefit other people. And I don't mean to sound hyperbolic about it, but it had this enormous impact on me that, you know, I was given this chance and I couldn't blow it. I mean, I was I was put in a position to learn from these people and to do the very best I could to take advantage of that opportunity. What have you tried to do, um, or how can we do a better job of instilling in in young people, in um, in college students, uh, in in our own families, to have that same uh, urgency and desire to to learn uh, about the world, and and how beneficial that is, whether you end up in um, in London or London, Kentucky. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's one thing I love about Kentucky: the names, uh, you know, London, Paris, and Versailles, and everything else. Um, that's a good question. I think part of it has to certainly emanate from within. You have to be naturally curious, but it also falls to you and to me, Bill. I think to try and motivate people today, young people, that it's not just about the latest iPhone or your car or uh, this or that. This is about improving what's between your ears and what's in your in your heart and the only way you do that is to um, kind of get out of your comfort zone um, learn about other people appreciate other cultures uh, I harken back to that famous quote from Mark Twain that the best way to break down misunderstanding and bigotry uh, is travel mm-hmm. travel breaks down so many mm-hmm. barriers and walls that are erected for whatever reason and I've been fortunate to see a lot of places in the world. There are a lot of other places I want to see. But that has opened up my perspective in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. You know, the challenge I think we have in Kentucky is a lot of these um, students that we have at Eastern are first generation. They have not had the means to travel. And so we've tried to give them through study abroad opportunities uh, and other ways that that, that chance. Because it will. It will transform your life. I want to touch on one uh, aspect of what you did uh, while you were at Eastern Kentucky University and then spend the last few minutes talking about your writing. But uh, this is maybe, except for the, uh, the residents, the faculty uh, 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 in the Richmond area and, and at the university, um, and I'm just going to read from, and I, I, I don't know, I did, I, this might have come from an article or it could have come from... Um, something that uh, was on your your website uh, at the university. Um, And you'll have to help me with some of these names. Uh, In 2015, uh, Benson uh, worked with retired EKU archivist Charles Hay and senior, is it Demar? Oh, uh, Demir Sakui. And proposed to the EKU Board of Regents that Dr. Mary Rourke, Eastern's acting president uh, in 1909 and 1910, be named officially as Eastern's second president. The board took this action uh, at its first February 2nd, 2015 meeting. Dr. Mary Rourke assumed the presidency when her husband, Rorick Neville Rourke, died suddenly after a short illness and was the first female to serve as president of any public college or university in the state of Kentucky. Uh, And then you then became Eastern's 13th president. (laughs) Why did you do that? Well, I appreciate you bringing that up because that means a lot to me, and I think it, it means a lot to our, our institution. Charles Hay, who was a retired archivist, had come to see me, and he became a good friend and is still a good friend during our tenure. 
But he told me the story of Mary, and I remember seeing her portrait over in the Rorick building and, and seeing the title Acting President. And he said, you know, we've been trying for years to right a historical wrong, and you're a historian, and I want you to read up about her and her husband. Interestingly enough, when I was doing my World War I class last year, I found that the Rorick's and the then president of Berea College both lost sons in World War I. Hmm. Um, and that was a tremendous loss to a pretty small community like Madison County. And even more of a loss to the families, of course. And so I started doing a little research on the Rorks. Uh, she was an amazing woman, had her a PhD. Her husband died in office. She took over. She signed the diplomas. The students loved her. They had these cheers that they would... Uh, kind of uh, break into as she walked across campus. And in point of fact, it was, um, it was a wrong. It needed to be righted. So Demir comes along and is doing, a, I think, an honors thesis. And Demir's now wife, Katie Scott, was our student body president. So I got to know them both pretty well. I went to their wedding in Berea a year or so ago. And he came to me and said, look, I've done a lot of research too. We've got to get this done. Hmm. So I said, okay, I'm going to propose it to the board that we the board, they're the only ones that can do it, remove that acting title, and she becomes the second president. And they did it. And I am so proud of the fact that we are the first institution in Kentucky to have a female president who, think about it, Bill, was the president 10 years before she could vote. Yeah. It took amending the Constitution, which has been done, what, 27 times, Mm -hmm. but she was running a school uh, before she had the right to go vote in an election. That's... uh in this year of celebrating women's suffrage, yeah. that's that's an amazing uh, statistic. So we have in our boardroom uh, the list of uh, the photographs of all the presidents, uh-huh. and more, Mary is up there now, and I'm so happy yeah. because she deserves it. She's buried in Richmond. I've been to her gravesite, and uh, as a historian, I've really come to appreciate what she and her husband have meant to the community. Uh, your um, your book after decades of uh, the first book. Um, uh, was published uh, with your co-author, uh, Hal Boyd, um, and that's uh, College for the Commonwealth, A Case for Higher Education and American Democracy, and that was published uh, with the University Press of Kentucky. Um, tell, us about, um, tell us about what you, even, even though you'd been, this was your third presidency at the time, uh, mm-hmm. you, you were... Um, uh, well-respected across the nation. You you were in a good place. But I would venture to say that you, in re- researching and writing and working with Boyd, uh, learned a, a lot about <laughs> what's right and maybe a lot about what's challenging about higher education in, in America. Well, I, I came to Kentucky with my wife and family in 2013. We immediately recognized that uh, she had family that had roots here. Um, Jefferson Hunt was born in Bracken County. Uh, she had another part of her family that was from Hart County. Kind of, uh, you're familiar with Hart County. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, of course, my ancestry, my middle name is Taft. Mm-hmm. And so they were all from Ohio. So mm-hmm. this part of the country felt like a natural fit for us. So as I got into uh, reading about the history, you can't live in Madison and not know about Berea College and John Fee and the first desegregated co-educational institution in the South in the 1850s. Think about that, Bill. Um, And then I read about Transylvania. You know, at one point, founded in 1780, uh, Thomas Jefferson's famous line that if they didn't fund the University of Virginia, 
they would continue to lose the best students to Cambridge and Lexington, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as I travel throughout the state, excuse me, I, you know, I, and when I go to Louisville and I read about Spalding University or I learn about Asbury or I learn about Center College just down the road from us at, uh, in Danville, with, with which we had a relationship back in the early part of the 20th century. We were together, and then they couldn't afford it, so we left and went back to Richmond and became a teaching institution. I didn't know that. Yeah. In 1906. So we mm-hmm. were together at Central University. We merged with Center for a little yeah. while. Um, so I, and the more, you know, a state with 4 million people, I think it's the 37th smallest state in the country. Um, I, I thought, man, what an amazingly rich higher education tradition is here. And maybe talking about it will help people realize that it needs funding now because you can't you yeah. can't walk back that investment or you can't strangle the funding that will help perpetuate it for future generations uh, without understanding how far they've come. And it's not dissimilar to our experience in Utah where these small farming communities, all of the, the residents recognized the absolute importance, the sine qua non, if you will, mm. of, of, of education. And they were willing to sacrifice whatever they had to build up these colleges. And they were fledgling. They struggled for years and years. Uh, but look at them now. Mm-hmm. And so I hope in our book we, came, uh, we made a, a, a compelling argument that Kentucky should be very proud of its higher education tradition, both public and private. But the only way the state is going to thrive is that if we support education. I tweeted out the other day, there was, it showed a graph of the states that had invested the most in, in, in higher education. And of those states, the five that had the most biggest increases, all five are in the top 10 of the best performing state economies. Now, happily, we reversed the trend in Kentucky last year and, and staunched the bleeding somewhat. But we're, we're getting laughed mm-hmm. by places like Tennessee uh, in our region, uh, even uh, North Carolina, you know, Texas, out west, Utah, Oregon, they're all recognizing the, the, the vital necessity of, incul- or of educating as many students as possible, hopefully keeping them in that state where they can get good jobs, and it certainly takes employers to come to your state to provide those jobs. But, you know, back to where I started and where I started, that project for me was so gratifying mm-hmm. because it put me back in touch with the history of this place and the state. And it ties into the, what you do with the humanities, uh, the, the council here, and that is the book festival and appreciating our history here uh, across a, a, a broad mm-hmm. spectrum. Um, and uh, I, I really have come to love and appreciate how much Kentuckians mm-hmm. love their history. Mm-hmm. And if we were able to add a small uh, contribution to that, it makes me really happy. Well, you certainly have. Uh, and finally, um, your this momentous turn in your life uh, is is already leading to. Uh, I think you you just said that you wrote nine thousand words. <laughs> wow, uh, this week sometime. Uh, but to start working on, um, or I mean, to continue working on on your next book, um, and, and tell us about that. Well, it it stems, uh, and you've covered the waterfront, Bill. So I'll try and be brief here and, and wrap up. But. Um, I heard a guy by the name of Jonathan Cole speak several years ago. Jonathan is a sociologist, Dr. Cole, provost at Columbia for years and years. He wrote a book called The Great American University. And in it, 
the first chapter or so, he goes through a list of inventions uh, or developments that have emanated out of research universities. And this is not an exhaustive list, but fetal monitoring, Cumidin, vitamins A and D, algorithm for Google, FM radio, fetal monitoring, or I mentioned fetal congestion pricing, um, GPS. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he goes through and in a paragraph, comes up with this list and says all of those got to start at a research university. So every single day, you and I use a device, some technology, mm-hmm. some principle, an economic principle otherwise, that was developed uh, by the genius that are our faculty and students and the staff that have for years and years built up the one thing that is in America that does not have a trade imbalance, and that is our edu- higher education system. People come from all over the world, and then he, he, he lists the, uh, uh, I think, the Times of London rankings uh, of the top 20, 16 are American or 17, the top 50, uh, it's 70%, the top 100, it's 65%. I mean, it, it's remarkable how many great schools we have here, and people come from all over the world. Well, he then leads into, well, how did this start? It started at Johns Hopkins University when they created the first model of a research university that took the German emphasis on research, applied research, and the British model of teaching and melded it together. And the gentleman that came up with this idea, thanks to the largesse of Mr. Johns Hopkins, mm-hmm. who died and left $7 million in 1872, <clears throat> which is an extraordinary amount of money, equal parts to a hospital and to a university, both of whom bear his name. And uh, Daniel Coit Gilman was the first president. He was recruited by the trustees from the University of California. And um, he had been at Yale. I found a quote yesterday from mm. a, a letter that he exchanged with Justin Morrill, mm. as in the Morrill Land Grant Act of mm. uh, 1872. Uh, beg your pardon, 1862. is right in the midst of the mm. Civil War. Mm-hmm. And these two had become friends and, and colleagues during his time at Yale. And... Uh, there was not a full dress biography of Daniel Coit Gilman, uh, and I found that out uh, kind of the hard way by going to campus one time on a business trip and asking the the bookstore for one, and they said, "Well, no one's written it." <laughs> so I said, "Here's my chance." Yeah. And I pitched the idea to Johns Hopkins Press, and uh, with an outline and a sample, and they said, "Yeah, we want you to do it." So. This is for me. I hope my PhD resistance, as they say, um, it, it's something I feel very strongly about. And um, I don't think Americans really appreciate uh, the amazing gems that are these these campuses. Now there are university systems out there, public ones: Wisconsin, Texas, California, New York, North Carolina, that for years have produced um, amazing discoveries, and are getting strangled now. And I think the, the, the danger, Bill, is that for the short-term gain of, of recouping funds that the state can then apply to other areas, we are not paying the piper on the front end mm-hmm. because we're going to pay the piper on the back end. Uh, and that is, I hope, I this book will help, help make that argument that, um, yes, I'm celebrating the life of a great educator, and I'm finding out, Bill, that all of these folks knew each other in the 19th century. They all went to Harvard or Princeton or Yale. Mm -hmm. They all uh, came from uh, really backgrounds where 
they were provided these amazing opportunities. But they also had this kind of noblesse oblige uh, philosophy that their responsibility was to give back. Mm-hmm. And they did it through establishing these remarkable institutions. So it, uh, it, it's a biography, but at the same time, it, there's, there's a lesson uh, in there that, that will be evident to, to anybody who, who reads this in the future. I, I certainly hope so, because um, there's nothing like our, our universities. And I, I've, my kids probably uh, regret the fact that um, we don't go to Disneyland or Disney World or other things like some families do. I've been once. But whenever we go on a trip, I always stop on a college campus, wherever we are. Because I think you can learn from whatever you see and appreciate the history of, of each of those places. And uh, America is, is blessed with a lot of great institutions. And uh, it all started from, uh, from Baltimore in 1876, at least with that model. Well, Dr. Michael Benson, uh, it's uh, indeed a, a pleasure and an honor to, to be with you. Uh, you are going to be in Kentucky for a few more months. Uh, we would hope that you would uh, uh, extend your stay and, uh, or certainly come back often. You have uh, uh, been such a, a supporter of Kentucky Humanities, but uh, you have uh, touched uh, legions of, uh, of people here, uh, students and faculty and uh, friends uh, that uh, will forever remember your influence. And I think the most marvelous thing, uh, if I might add, uh, about you at this point is you're, you're such a young uh, man <laughs> and you have so much uh, to give and so much to contribute and you're such a, uh, a great thinker that the world uh, needs you uh, in, uh, in, and we will look uh, forward to seeing your, your accomplishments beyond uh, this next book and what you can uh, continue to do for, uh, in your life. Well, thank you, Bill. It's very kind and probably much too generous, but uh, I really commend you and all the folks in Kentucky that, as I said, helped promulgate the amazing history here. And with that history come all the accoutrements that benefit our life. I mean, look at the way humanities improves your life on a daily basis. And so, sure, technical programs are important. And I'm going through in my book right now, <clears throat> the chapter I'm writing, this age-old dilemma of the technical programs, the ones that want to go into scientific areas, the Sheffield Scientific School at Yale, with those that want to more classical. So this is not a new mm-hmm. argument. There's a place for both. And I'm so grateful there are things like Kentucky Humanities that help promote uh, what it is that gives our life uh, richness and, and meaning. Well, thank you for sharing uh, your story uh, today. Uh, thank you for sharing your life uh, here in Kentucky. Thank you very much, Bill. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.